endless love. Uh, Maybe a great line uh, to sell a song, uh, but uh, it it isn't really what we see here. Does anyone remember that song? Uh, I'm kind of going to show my age here a little bit, aren't I? Uh, It was a a song with Diana Ross and Lionel Richie many, many years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm really embarrassing to show my age here, but it brought together probably two of the greatest vocalists of the time, these haunting kind of harmonies, romantic lyrics. It was an instant classic of its era. And many since then have tried to cover this great song. It's on X Factor every series when you get to the duet uh, kind of evening. And why, we have to ask, is their song so enduring? It's called Endless Love, which is absolute nonsense. Uh, in fact, the whole song is nonsense. It's, you might say, just romantic drivel. Uh, it's pie in the sky thinking. It's exaggerated balderdash about two people's affections. Now, before you think I'm a complete grumpy guts and I have no kind of understanding of kind of romantic love, uh, these are two people, as they sing together, uh, who, who express that rightly and appropriately. If you remember a few months ago, we were looking at the book of Song of Songs, which is a romantic love poem. People do that when they're in love. They speak in exaggerated terms. And that's a good thing. But love isn't endless between two people. Because it ends at death, if not before. Uh, The love in a community that we might experience isn't endless. As I said, endless love may be a great line to sell a song, but it's not reality, is it? And what Paul writes in our passage today, oh, it's not a song, but it's it's a huge dose of reality for Timothy in his situation. That's who the letter is written to. He's leading this young, struggling church in Ephesus, we now know as Turkey. If this passage were a song, it would be called not endless love, but probably misdirected love. Not quite such a snappy title for a song, I doubt. Uh, I'm not sure it would sell well, but I'm not sure couples would be singing it to each other, uh, you know, during karaoke times or at the end of their wedding receptions. You know, misdirected love, it doesn't have a ring to it, does it really? But that is what Paul is warning Timothy about here. Misdirected love. Let's just think about what Paul has covered in this letter so far. Just glance back, if you like, on the previous pages and and think about what he's writing, a very personal letter. Just even in the first verse, you see he's writing to his dear son. Verse 2, sorry, chapter 1, Timothy, his dear son. He's writing in chains, we see in chapter 1. He's languishing in prison. Uh, He knows he's likely to be executed soon. He was executed soon. He knows that there's this church in Ephesus which he established and set up and he loves them dearly. And the people are leaving in their droves, we see in chapter 1. He knows that Timothy is fragile himself, timid by nature. He knows knows all of this. And so he writes this letter, his last ever letter, Paul's last ever letter before his death. And he says to Timothy, guard the good deposit of the gospel. And be strong. Be strong in the grace or the power that Christ enables in and through you. And there's opposition all around Timothy. He knows that. And Paul calls him to therefore to be a gospel minister, but also a Christian. And he uses all these kind of metaphors in chapter 2 to say it's going to be tough. He uses the metaphor of an athlete, a farmer, and a soldier. And he says it's going to be tough. And he uses other metaphors like a servant. Gospel ministry is hard, he's saying. Telling people about Jesus is very hard. 
He's to remember the gospel that we saw a couple of weeks ago and the power of the gospel. And he's, last week we saw, if he's going to be useful for God in making the gospel known, who we are before God matters so much. So much more than what we can do. Character is everything to Paul. Much more than his competency. And so we get to chapter 3, and, and, and Paul's going to get ever more specific now. Uh, the, the chapter begins with this phrase. Look, at, look down at chapter 3, verse 1. It simply says, but mark this. Essentially, take note, Timothy. Oi, Timothy, if you dropped off a bit, wake up now. This is really important. But mark what? Look at verse 1. It says, there will be terrible times in these last days. Timothy, he's saying, Paul, Paul is saying to Timothy, this is what you should expect. There won't be endless love throughout the church or in the individuals of the church. The reality is far more gloomy. Misdirected love will abound, it seems. Let's look at that first verse there. There will be terrible times in these last days. Let's just get uh, an understanding of what he's talking about there. The last days is a phrase. It's only uh, Old Testament. It's picked up by New Testament writers and Jesus himself. Uh, and it's, it describes that time between Jesus' resurrection, evidenced in history, not just in the Bible, in numerous histories, between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming in the future, a time we don't know. We live, therefore, in these last days. But you see, in God's salvation plan, uh, we're kind of in extra time. Excuse the illustration, but you get the picture. We're not quite at the penalty stage yet. Uh, The Bible calls those the end times. But we are very much in extra time. And we live in these last days, the final chapter, the last leg of the relay race, if you like. You kind of, you see where we're going, You, you where we are. The point is, there isn't much time left. Uh, Hence the clipped way that Paul speaks to Timothy here. He's highlighting, Timothy, this is what you should expect. Between when Christ was resurrected and when Christ will return, this is what you should expect in these times, Timothy. And Paul is clear, there will be terrible times. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Look at us. Look at how we live. Look at what we eat, the stuff we go to, the things we enjoy. They don't look very terrible, does it? In fact, it looks pretty amazing. You see, these terrible times might look quite the opposite to some. But Paul chooses a very, very rare word in the New Testament here to to make his point all the more specific. The word used for terrible in verse 1 is only used once elsewhere in the whole of the New Testament. And that's in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus heals two demon-possessed people in in the area of the Gadarenes. And the picture there is very specific that these men were, were violent in their possession. Now, the picture, therefore, these terrible times are violent times. Now, again, you're probably thinking, well, that's not, the, that's not the case here. But it's quite a generic violent word. That is, it could be physical violence, psychological, social, or political. These last days, Paul says, will be marked with these kind of terrible, violent times between people and nations. Now, of course... What he's saying here, and the language kind of points to it, that sometimes will be more intense than others. They were certainly experiencing that in Ephesus at this time. 
but there will be terrible times in the last days. And Timothy must mark this. He must be aware, not naive, if you like, about the times in which we live in and the people then lived in. As a gospel minister, as a Christian, he must be able to discern. And as we'll see, as we look down in verse 5, you see, he must know in those times who to avoid. Now, yes, of course, this is a localised problem. This is a letter being written from one place to a specific place in Ephesus. And, and, but the language it used is actually quite general. And ought to make all of us stand back and reflect. Because we live in these times too. So what should Timothy expect? What should he see? What should he be warned against? Uh, Paul's aim is firmly fixed on, on false teachers within the church in Ephesus and their followers. And so what are they like? We get that listen, don't we, in verse 2 to 4. And that is quite a shocker. Well, look at all the words. There's 18 altogether. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, obedient, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, or holy, Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Extraordinary three verses. What comes out most? Love. But always in its negative. There is an inversion of love. Inversion of love. There's misdirected love. So our first main point, people will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Do you see the bookmarks in those verses there? Well, Jesus himself, you remember he taught uh, a number of times in all of the gospel accounts. He taught a summary of the law from Deuteronomy 6. He stated this, that his followers must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. Well, that's not what we see here in Ephesus. If, if like uh, Jesus says, put God first, put others second, then you're third. And what we see is the complete role reversal here in Ephesus. Self-love reigned. It's like a, it, you know, the cor, cor, uh, I can't never say this. Nicholas Copernicus, cor, uh, isn't it? I can't remember his name. Sorry? Yeah, that's the one. He was German, wasn't he? Oh, I'm going to embarrass myself here. <laughs> anyway, it's a Copernican problem. Do you remember him? Anyway, he was the guy that basically... I'm not going to say his name again because I'm embarrassing myself. But he was the guy that basically found out that, that the Earth was not the centre of our solar system. Previously, everyone thought that everything revolved around us. But he said, no, the sun. The sun is the centre. Everything revolves around that. And what Paul is suggesting here is that in the last days, there will be a reverse, Nicholas... See, whatever his name is, shift. It's the opposite way around. People will no longer have God at the centre of their lives, where he ought to be, but rather they will put themselves at the centre and everything revolves around them. And sadly, this has been the human condition throughout all the ages. And the root of the problem is misdirected love. If God is no longer the centre, if he is pushed aside as we make ourselves the centre of our worlds, this is what follows, is what he's saying in these verses. Three verses, 18 things that will follow. Look at the list. This is the, these are the ways where love is misdirected. And this is what Timothy should expect. It's what we should expect and look out for. 
If the order of our love is not firstly God, then others and ourselves, this is what results. And I wonder, do you recognise any of these in the world in which you live? In the community that you habit, in the workplace where you are? Now, Paul seems to couple them uh, in a number of kind of ways. People kind of speculate how they group together. But we're going to do the most of them in couples, if you like. Uh, the point is, can you imagine a church where there's this many leaders living like this? Sometimes we look back and don't we look at the, kind of the early church in the Bible and think, oh, it must have been brilliant. I wish I was there. No, you don't. It was awful. Look at them. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. See, when you shift your affections from God to yourself and your pleasure, you'll very quickly uh, become, what one scholar put, uh, a narcissistic brute. You just love yourself and what you can get for yourself. And you'll use people for that end. This is obviously followed by a love for money, as money is the means which you can lavish on yourself, what you want which only makes you love yourself even more. Do you see how it works together? Secondly, I'm going to run through these very fast. I don't want to beat us up to you. But, you know, let's just run through them quickly. Boastful and proud. Now, these two words are often linked in the Bible and in our language. Boastful is to do with words. It's focused outwardly, isn't it? You're boastful. Whereas being proud speaks of your inward motivation and thoughts. It's quite the opposite, isn't it? Psalm 32, verse 4, for example, where the psalmist calls us to boast in the glory of God alone. No, people will boast for themselves, as we see here in Ephesus. Thirdly, uh, abusive, uh, disobedient to their parents. Now, the abusive word here is a root word, is, is blasphemy. It could equally be translated as slanderous. If you love yourself first, this is somewhat inevitable, because as you begin to think the world revolves around you, you'll begin to look down on others and speak lowly of others. What follows is a number of actually family-related issues. There's kind of a group of them that come up. And we see then what follows of the abusiveness is the disobedience to parents. See, this is a, such an endemic in our, in our culture. If children think that they are to be the centre of attention, if everything revolves around them, you've kind of got to wonder who's to blame for them becoming disobedient. If children are, modelled, are taught and modelled that loving themselves should come first... Oh, you have no, nothing to expect apart from abusive children who are disobedient. Fourthly, ungrateful and unholy, isn't it? The fourth couplet. These are the natural twins of the former two, if you like. And the Bible teaches, and therefore God teaches, that children should obey and honour their parents. Uh, but these people were ungrateful. They couldn't even muster the basic appreciation for their parents. And therefore, they're described here as unholy. That is not devout. They, you know, they come to church because it's, it's kind of nice to be seen there. and They put on the show. They know what to do. But they don't come to praise God. Not to rekindle their love for God and respect their parents as, as a result. Fifthly, uh, without love and unforgiving. This could be translated in old translations. It was just inhuman. Without love. Heartless, you might say. They seem incapable of just normal human affections. They're without family love. The filial word there in the Greek comes out. The, the, the love found in friendship as well. 
And therefore they're bitter. And what results is the unforgiving nature. And if you cross these people, I'm sure you've crossed people. Maybe you are one of these people. But if, they, if you cross someone like that, you know about it, don't you? You walk away cold. It's so easy to become critical, unforgiving and bitter, isn't it? When you're un- unable to access the love of others. Sixth uh, couplet, slanderous without self-control. They were backbiting and they were out of control in that. They let it go. You know what happens when your worst trait, you kind of let it slip once, then again, and again. A couple of weeks down the line, you just, you're out of control. Brutal, not lovers of the good. These men didn't love anything that was intrinsically good. It just would be dismissive about those things, critical of it. You know, it's kind of people that, you know, they see, it, they see the sunshine and they go, oh. You know, they have, they have a good day at work and they go, oh, it wasn't that great. You know, they get bonuses not as much as them. Everything is just negative. They don't love what's intrinsically good. They'd just be dismissive, critical, and, and, and brutal with it. As they wouldn't listen to anyone. Treacherous and rash. It's interesting that Judas was described in these terms. Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. He was treacherous in that he would betray anyone to get what he wanted. He was also rash in that he would do anything, at whatever cost, to get what he wanted. Conceited seems to sit alone. Literally, the word means to be puffed up. Thinking too highly of themselves. Last two, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The, the pleasure word is the hedonai word, hedonism as we get from that. They were controlled by their own desire for pleasure, not controlled by their love of God. And it's interesting, in that whole list, I mean, we've got to the end of it, 18 words there, none of them are good. The whole paragraph is a list of self-loving vice, if you like. And can you imagine... Think about it. If that is the church leaders or the leaders within the church, can you imagine what the church is like? If you can't imagine it, well, I don't think you can. Because we've never seen anything like that. It's that bad. But this is God's critique of the church in Ephesus through the Holy Spirit and through Paul here, revealed to us in the Bible. And verse 5, if you look down there at the end of it, it's it's like a summary statement of these people, but also a link to the next section. Look at it. It says, they're having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Here we get to our second point, and now we'll use it to link to that. People will have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. See, these people, despite that list of 18 things, they looked fantastic. They had a form of godliness. They knew what to say and when to say it. They knew how to speak, how to pray. They knew the right words that people would accept them and respect them. On the outside, these are religious people in the church. They were slick and they were winsome, as you can imagine. They wore all the right things. They said all the right things. They probably had all the access they wanted to all the big buildings. And crowds came to see them. They knew all the things to say over coffee at the end of the service to show that they had been listening to the sermon and they knew exactly 
what the, how, the, how to apply it. They knew all the questions uh, and the, the answers to the questions at home group. They knew how to impress when they prayed. They were in the right crowd, but Paul says they're all shown. They're empty, without substance. I think we have to be really careful when looking at a passage like this. It would be so easy for us, wouldn't it, to go, right, that's that stem over there. And keep it at arm's length. To keep them as this kind of abstract and historical thing rather than personal and present. Are you doing that already in your heads, in your hearts? I spent about four days doing it, so don't feel bad about it. We are in the last days. There will be people like this now. But again, are we looking too far away outside of these walls? Uh, Where in that list of 18 did you feel the most uncomfortable? Love of money, maybe? Love of pleasure, maybe? What if your income level and your standard of living suddenly really radically reduced? What if you were unable to travel? What if you were unable to go out for dinner as much as you do? Uh, What if your hunt for pleasure was suddenly stopped? How would you react? Well, that will indicate to you how much you love those things. Money. Pleasure. See, it's easy to have a form of godliness, to have all of those things in our church culture that makes everyone else think you're so godly and you're so wonderful, singing all the songs, saying all the prayers, but are you denying its power? It was true for these leaders in the church of Ephesus. They looked and sounded so godly and upright, but they were form without power. They were outward show without inward reality. They had a show of faith, but no works. See, true faith in Christ will always combine, combine those form and power. Uh, the Christian is to have a heart absolutely captivated by Christ, but then there should be a natural outflowing that should be for all to see in a life of worship. These people were an abomination to God, which is why Paul is so strong when he's writing to Timothy. Look what he says at the end of verse 5. Have nothing, nothing to do with such people. Avoid them. Do not associate with them is what he's saying. This isn't a call, by the way, for Christians to isolate themselves and just speak to no one at all. No, please do not do that. But these people in the church were appearing all religious and godly when in reality they were the complete opposite. And they are dangerous. They're dangerous in any church. And they should be lovingly disciplined. And if they remain unrepentant, they should be gently and kindly asked to leave. And that's what 1 Corinthians 5 says, if you want to have a look. Or Matthew 18 says. Because they're dangerous. And look how dangerous they were. Verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. This is not Paul being sexist before anyone jumps on that. The term he literally uses here is little women. Again, not sexist, meaning they are little in comparison to the leaders uh, in a number of ways, but they are vulnerable. That's the essence of that word. 
They are vulnerable. They're vulnerable because they're at home all day, lonely, probably a bit bored. Vulnerable because they're loaded down with sins of the past, it says here. These are probably the wealthy women of Ephesus because their homes, in the, in the original, it literally says the homes. Speaking that there's probably a bunch of really big houses where the church we used to meet in. And these were the homes. These were the women of these homes. They were susceptible and the leaders went after them. They were easy prey, essentially. Loaded down with sins, a leader would worm into their homes. It's a horrible word, isn't it? And again, gain, gain control in that relationship. Perhaps they thought that this, oh, this religious man coming into my house might, might just you know, help me feel a little bit better about myself because I'm so weighed down with all of these of my past. Maybe just lighten the load for them a bit. But as verse 7 says, these women always learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. You can imagine they've probably been on endless Christian conferences, looking so great, uh, going to weekends away, regulars at church, always learning, but never, ever coming to a knowledge of the truth. They would listen to anyone, but like little boats, they were tossed about on the waves of the storm. Paul makes a really, really striking parallel here, and a very strong parallel. If you look down at verse 8 as we get near to the end here, he says, just as Jonas and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Now, these two characters, Jonas and Jambres, they don't actually appear in the Bible at all. We only know from what we call the uh, Jewish Targums, or the historical books of the Jews, um, that they are the men who mo- uh, came to Moses, uh, appealed by uh, Pharaoh, in the court in Exodus 7. So there we have uh, Moses coming in with Aaron's staff. He's appealing to Pharaoh and saying, please let my people go, that God's people, they were in slavery in Egypt. And he's, he comes in and says, look, let me demonstrate God's power to you. And Aaron's staff becomes a snake. Pharaoh then calls these two magicians, uh, Jonas and Jambres, here, and they come in with their staffs, and they are magicians. They have some kind of power, some dark power, and they turn their staffs into snakes as well. They oppose the truth, though. That is the picture of them. They were in opposition to God speaking truth to Pharaoh, to God speaking truth into that nation. And here Paul is using them as a parallel to the false teachers in Ephesus because they opposed the same truth. Interestingly, in Exodus 7, 12, the, the, Jonathan and Jambres' staff, when they become snakes, they get eaten by the snake that Aaron's staff had become. They were exposed. They were found out. A greater power came on them, if you like. And likewise here, as we close, in verse 9, they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. It's hard, isn't it, when you look at some people. You might see them online or at a church you visit and they, they have the same Bible, they say all the right things. They meet in big buildings and they seem so successful. But like Jonas and Jambres, they will be exposed. Something somewhere will expose them for who they really are. And sadly, there is headline after headline after headline of this. Look at the situation and in Ephesus. It's so terrible. It's so weak as well, isn't it? But as we close, let us not be arrogant and naive as to think that we're not immune from such critique. This is misdirected love in the people. 
Yes, specifically as we look to the leaders in the church in Ephesus. But as a people, uh, there would be many others involved in all this as well. Where have we, where have you inverted love, if you like, misdirected love? Where have you become a lover of self rather than a lover of God? The danger is that we think that we can play with this. That we can be in control. That, oh yeah, we'll let go of this part of our lives. That's okay. We'll love God everywhere else, every other compartment of our life. But on that area, no. I'm keeping control there. That is a dangerous and slippery slope. Have you allowed your ability, and by the fact that you are here, living in this area, working in London, you are all incredibly able at this. Have you allowed your ability to comfortably fit in with other Christians, saying and doing the right things? Have you a form of godliness but no power? You are professionals at putting on a show. Only you know your hearts and minds, don't you? What do you really love? Pleasure? Travel? Experiences? Food and drink? Now, hear me right. There's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, there's a good restaurant which I can recommend because the, the chef's here today. Uh, but, you know, like, <laughs> you know, all of these things, there's nothing wrong with those things. They're wonderful things. But do you love them? More than you love God. Do you love God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind and, and love your neighbour as yourself? If not, where are you misdirecting your love? Let me finish with this, if I may. Do you remember in the book of Revelation, there are seven letters written to seven churches. John is giving this revelation. What was the first church that was written to? Ephesus. And, and each of those letters has a very particular form to it. Uh, and there's praise and then there's warning in the centre of each letter. Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. This is the warning that this church that <coughs> Timothy is leading, that Paul is now writing to. This is the warning they received. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent, literally turn back to God and do the things you did at first. Warning, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'll remove Christ and his spirit from you. I wonder, is that true for you and me? Please, let us lovingly be warned. Let us humbly repent. And let us love God, not just as show, but being transformed by the Spirit into a glorious and personal and eternal relationship with God. Let's pray as we close. Maybe just a moment of quiet to consider our own selves before God.
wherever we're at, just a moment of quiet and time to think.